a note here as I get started with the reading and then the sermon. Uh, the sermon was originally preached on October 23rd due to some technical difficulties that morning. Um, it was not recorded, but I think it's worth hearing um, in continuity with the rest of the sermon series that we're doing in the fall of 2021. And so with all that said, uh, listen now to me recording this sermon in an empty sanctuary. So if there's no laughing at my jokes, that's why. But listen now to God's word from 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance, nor on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called to Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as if I need any more proof, that God has a sense of humor. Something happened this week to underscore that and drive it home. Now, as we're going to see our passage this morning, it really revolves around sight and different kinds of seeing. And as I was reflecting on this passage this past week and and I was um, engaged in my study, uh, I came home uh, one day to see that my son Gregory, his, his glasses were broken. One of the arms had detached from the frame, and and so I had to glue it back together and and go out and order him some new glasses. And this just made me think about how important it is to see. Uh, I I wear contact lenses, but if I I didn't, um, I really can't see anything. My my vision is is so bad that if you think of, you know, the vision chart where the biggest letter is the big E, when I'm taking my vision test without any corrective lenses— that is just a giant blob to me. So I know about what I'm speaking. But, but for Gregory, you know, sight is even a more precious thing. Um, he just celebrated his 
6th birthday yesterday. And for those who weren't around back then, he was born extremely uh, prematurely at, at 23 weeks, 3 days. And, and that is not good, uh, in case you were wondering, for a person's overall health. And one of the complications for preemies like Greg, who are, who are born that early, is something called retinopathy of, of prematurity, which basically, um, you know, one of the things when babies are born that early, their lungs are not fully developed, so they require quite a bit of oxygen. That oxygen is great and then it helps them live, but that level of oxygen saturation in their environment also uh, contributes to basically the malformation of um, the blood vessels in their eyes and that, uh, that, that, that go to their retina. And, and so one of the, the, the risks uh, associated with this is, is a disease called retinopathy of prematurity. Basically, your blood vessels in your eye don't grow properly, and the retina, they do so in such a way that causes a retinal detachment. And if your retinas are detached, um, you can't see, you're blind. And, and actually, that's why Stevie Wonder is blind. He was a premature baby, and, and, and the way he was treated with oxygen, and babies were treated with oxygen back then, caused um, this disease, and so it caused his blindness. And nowadays, they're just light years ahead of where they used to be in treating this disease. They're already treating it in the hospital. They're already able to, to, to track it, you know, when he's just a baby. can't, you know, he's a tiny preemie, can't indicate anything. And so, um, but they look at how the blood vessels are developing, and, and they saw it was developing, and so they were, they gave him a shot of this medicine in his eye. That was quite uh, the sight to behold. But anyways... You know, he grows up, and, and they're able to treat this disease. And before he could speak, they could tell he needed some correction. And so actually through, through, through glasses and through patching and all of that, they've been able to improve his vision and his bad eye from something like 2060 to 2030. And, and our doctor, she's, you know, she's saying, I'm greedy. I want to get to 2020. We don't know if he'll get there. But to me, that just shows the remarkable uh, plasticity of the eye and the brain as they develop, as well as the miracles and marvels of modern medicine. Now, Greg, he's our, he's our miracle child, and we are just constantly astounded at the lengths to which he's grown and developed and improved, and we just praise God for him each and every day. And he's a reminder to us to take nothing for granted, the, the simple things, especially not the ability to see. And sight is the great theme of our passage today, and so we're going to look at, uh, at three different kinds of of seeing, of sight in our passage. Hindsight, looking backward, insight, looking inward, and foresight. All right, so those three kinds of sight, hindsight, uh, insight, and foresight. So first, hindsight, looking backwards. Our passage begins with the Lord saying to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And uh, this is obscured in the translation, but God actually says, uh, I have seen for myself a king among his sons. So there's that verb, there's that word, seeing. God sees for himself. Now all that to say, when we encounter Samuel though here, God saying, I, I've, I've provided you a, a son. I've seen for myself a son among the sons of Jesse. Well, Samuel, he's looking back. He's filled with grief about Saul. And since our last uh, encounter with, with Samuel last week, a lot's happened. He's grown up. He has been uh, the key leadership, leader figure for the people of Israel in their ongoing struggles against their neighbors. You know, the people, they're, they're struggling and they're saying, you know, our problem is we don't have a king. All the other nations have a king. 
And, and, and so Samuel tells this to the Lord, and so the Lord says, I'm going to give them what they ask for. And so they get a king. They, they get Saul. Saul is anointed by Samuel to be the first king of Israel. And so Saul was, in effect, Samuel's made man. But tragically, over time, Saul proves himself to be an unfaithful leader. And so God rejects Saul's kingship. God regretted it, and God committed himself to giving Israel a new king. It's a new era. So if we're kind of tracing our steps, we go from the period of the judges, where there's no king, to Saul, where the people get their king. But now at last, with what's going to happen, God is going to provide his own king. But this new day, this promise of a new leader and a new king, it didn't fill Samuel with excitement, but grief. He grieved what had become of Saul. He grieved his role in elevating this figure who had failed so greatly. He couldn't help but look back and wonder and wish, you know, where, you know, what are where things had gone wrong and wish, you know, maybe if something had gone differently, right? The what if, what if, what if pattern. A couple of things about hindsight here I want to say. And first is hindsight can actually be incredibly useful. Looking back and seeing, okay, how, how, how did we get to where we are? What, what happened? It's crucial for self-understanding, for growth. The past, history, our own personal history, those are great teachers. Right? It's useful for all of us when we get to a crucial stages in our lives, kind of these, 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 um, in these moments where we're facing, you know, we've, we've reached a crisis or we've reached a crossroads, we can go, well, how did I get here? And that can inform the way we go. But the problem with hindsight can become when we're fixated on the past. Because what happened in the past, it can't be changed. Whatever we, mistakes we made, we can't undo. And in fact, sometimes the past can be overdetermined. We can think that hindsight is twenty twenty. There's a reason that cliche is true. Saying, well, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, of course, if we had known how everything would turn out, we would have done something differently. But the thing is, we can't know. We can't know. And so, you know, the past can't be undone. Words spoken in the past can't be unspoken. Actions taken in the past uh, cannot be reversed. And so the past, hindsight in this way, can make the past into a prison. You can't see where God is leading you if you're just always looking backwards. It's as foolish as someone trying to, you know, walk around Lake Harriet walking backwards. You know, you're going you're gonna to bump into somebody or you're going to find yourself wet. And so God is saying to Samuel that the time has come for him to stop looking backward and, and, to, and to start looking around and looking forward, to be present to what God is going to show him. And churches are notorious for this, for getting stuck in the past. And, and I'm not talking here about getting stuck in the past of crash, classical Christian teaching and theology. Okay, that's dusty. That's old. That's outdated. Those are things we need to get rid, uh, rid of so we can be, you know, attuned to the spirit of the age. That, I'm not talking about kind of presentism here or, or what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, this idea that whatever is, you know, au courant, you know, and popular now is, is the truth. But what I am talking about is this, is, is, is this tendency in churches, it's true of all institutions, but especially the church, to look backwards in the sense that um, we always say these you know, famous last seven words of, of any at-risk uh, institution or entity is, is these are the words. That's the way we've always done it before. Or that's the way we've always done it. And the problem with such statements are, are twofold. One, they usually are not completely true. Practically nothing is, is the way they've always been. So it's false. 
And the second problem with them is that they can be used as an excuse to not discern what God would have us do now. One of the great uh, summaries of the Reformation, and next Sunday is Reformation Sunday, give me something to look forward to, but one of the great summaries of uh, what the Reformation was about was that it's, it's about the, the church, and the, the Latin is the Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda Est. The church is always reformed and always being reformed or reforming. And so the church is always called to a critical examination of what we're doing and why we're doing it and what we believe and why we believe it. But when we think about this constant call to self-examination and, and reformation, actually, most people, when they're talking about, you know, the church is reformed and always reforming, they leave out the last part, uh, secundum verbum dei, according to the word of God. And so it's not just a call to reform and rethink in general, but always reform according to God's word, uh, to greater fidelity to that. And one other thing about hindsight is, is I want to put in kind of two cheers for hindsight, though, here before we move on to insight, is that I do believe that Samuel's grief, there's something to be said for it. There's something to be commended for it in the sense that at least his response to Saul's failure was grief over Saul's sin. One insightful commentator I read, you know, asked pointedly, if, if think of our own reaction to the failings of other people. How do we react? Could this, is this true for us? You know, is our response, you know, schadenfreude, that we take a, a, a pleasure in the pain of another? Or is it just anger directed toward them? And far too often the answer to these questions is yes. And we see with Samuel that the proper response should be sorrow. And so in that sense, we ought to share in Samuel's grief. All right, so that's hindsight looking backward. But now we get to the heart of the passage, pun intended, because it's about the heart. It's about looking inward, in sight. Learning to see what is normally hidden from plain view. The Lord tells Samuel, go to Bethlehem, visit a man named Jesse, because God is going to see for himself a, a, a king among his sons. And so Samuel understands, though, this is a dangerous act, as do the elders of Bethlehem. You know, you've had a falling out like Samuel has with the king. And, and Samuel has told Saul directly, the Lord has rejected you. Your kingship is over. Well, now every move that Samuel makes is going to be suspect in the eyes of Saul. And, and everyone who associates with Samuel is going to be suspect in his eyes because they're going to be seen as plotting his usurpation. And so Samuel goes, I can't just move around. Saul is a dangerous man. Bethlehemites, they don't want any trouble. They, they just want to be left alone. And here comes Samuel. Here comes trouble. But the Lord provides Samuel with a, a pretext for his trip. He's going to perform a sacrifice, as is his one. Samuel is a, is a prophet and he's a priestly figure. And so the stage is set for him to look for a king amongst the sons of Jesse. And in just two verses, verses 6 and 7 of our passage, the, the, the verb for seeing, for sighted, occurs six times. And so clearly, Scripture wants us to see, again, pun intended, something here. God wants us to think about sight, about insight, in a new way. And so the question comes, you know, when we're, we're looking to find a leader, what are we looking for? What are we looking for? And at first... Samuel, he, he repeats the earlier mistake that he'd made. When he sees Eliab, the oldest son, he, he, he sees what he thinks is a natural leader. Eliab is strong, he's tall, he's good-looking, he's everything you'd want in a king. 
straight out of central casting. But the problem is Samuel had done that once before when, when, when he had anointed Saul. Saul was chosen for what he looked like on the outside without any mention, not, not a word about his inner life. All the way back in 1 Samuel 9, when, when we first meet Saul, and Samuel first met Saul, we learned that you know, he's a rich daddy. And, and uh, Scripture says he was a, quote, handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. So he's handsome, and did I mention that he's handsome? And it continues. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the other people. He's rich. He has dashing good looks. And, and he stands head and shoulders above everyone else. What more could one look for in a king, in a leader? The men want to be him. The women want to be with him. And so Samuel anointed him as king. It seems so obvious, and yet it turned out to be a disaster. That's the entire passage here. It hinges on this concept of insight, on being able to see beyond the obvious, beyond the merely visible, beyond the perceptible, and get to the heart of the matter. And so that distinction, that, that distinction is captured in the most famous verse from this chapter where it says this, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so the, stink, the distinction between human sight and God's sight is this. Left to our own devices, we focus on characteristics. But God focuses on character. Let me say that again. We, when left to our own devices, we are inclined to look for characteristics. Are they rich? Are they successful? Are they tall? Are they good looking? Are they strong? But God is looking for character. Are they patient? Are they kind? Are they courageous? Are they gentle? Do they have integrity? That's what's meant by the heart. The heart is your character. The heart is who you are on the inside. The heart is what you want. The heart is what you desire. The heart is what you think about. The heart is what you value. The heart is what you love. The heart is something that we cannot see, and the heart is something that can only be revealed. And we look on outward appearances all the time. We judge book by their, books by their covers. You say, don't judge a book by its cover. Well, we do that because we think, well, okay, if it's a good book, someone must have cared enough to invest money in making it have an attractive cover. And it actually makes some sense. But when it comes to finding leaders, spiritual leaders, political leaders, that's not good enough. In the church and the world, we fall for the same trap. You know, who do we select typically to positions of leadership? Is it always, you know, the successful business person? Is it always the folks who have the most education, who have, you know, the most advanced degrees? Is it the people who are best at public speaking, uh, the people who present themselves as, you know, kind of upper middle class or middle class and, and well put together? Any kind of people who could be in a, in a, in a J. Crew catalog? You know, none of those things are, are bad in and of themselves. You know, I consider myself, I, I've, had, I've been to a lot of school. Whether I'm well-educated, that's another question. But, but um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, 
you know, I've been to a lot of school. And then the, the other question is, you know, I, I, I mean, the other point of it is this, you know, I like to think I'm reasonably well put together. I mean, if not fashionable, but, but none of this gets at the heart. None of this gets at character. You know, David was the overlooked son. You know, seven in scripture is, is a magic number. It's the number of perfection. And he's number eight. Jesse didn't even bother to come in, uh, call him to come in from the fields. He's the smallest son. He's the youngest son. Uh, in, in Hebrew, it would be fair to say that it's saying he's the runt. He's the insignificant son. He was the one who wasn't invited to the party. He was left to watch over the sheep. Well, the rest of them were preparing to sacrifice and to feast and, and to, you know, parlay with the prophet of God, the great and powerful Samuel. Now, there's two ways that this could have formed uh, David's character. One way it could have formed his character is it could give him a Napoleon complex. When you're always overlooked, when you're small, you know, you, you, you feel like you're always being slighted. You're, you're always being um, neglected and being treated as inferior. And so this can give you this, this Napoleon complex where you always are overcompensating for that, making yourself the center of attention, never again being bothered with the menial tasks. Or it could do something different. It could form him toward complete faithfulness to the Lord, that he would remember that he was the one who would never neglect the responsibilities to his flock. That he would lead them and he would defend them. He would guard and guide them when no one else would. That because he knew like, what it was like to be overlooked, that, that he would make sure that he never did that to someone else. There's two ways being overlooked can form our character. And in the future, we're going to get to see David at his best and at his worst. But God saw something in the runt, in the smallest, in the youngest, in the most insignificant that others didn't. He saw courage, dependability, faithfulness, and unwavering commitment in the shepherd boy. And that complete devotion to God, that's what differentiated David from Saul. Because if we look at David's later life, there's a lot of immorality in there. And scripture doesn't balk from telling us all about that. It doesn't shy away from it. And so what is it about David that makes him a man after God's own heart? If it's not his, you know, incredible moral uh, character or fiber. It's this, his complete devotion and unwavering devotion to the Lord. Saul didn't have that. David did. And the need to look for character and not characteristics, it's one of the, the, the markers of really one of the great struggles in our nation's history. You think about that, characteristics, outward stuff, character, inward stuff. You know, our nation's history has been shaped by the struggle and the failings around this. Think about that. Far too often in our society, people have been judged based on what they look like on the outside versus truly who they are on the inside. That's one of the great sins of, of racism. Believing that what someone looks like on the outside is a relevant piece of information when evaluating their character, their intelligence, their morality, even their humanity. Dr. King's dream, his most famous line from that speech, was, was his dream that one day his children would be what judged not by the color of their skin, their characteristics, but by the content of their character. Now, this dream, this striving for colorblindness, it's often derided these days, actually, amongst the, uh, you know, the great and good. And, and I'm not entirely sure why. And I think perhaps the reason is that it's, it's seen as a, a kind of form of denialism. 
denying a difference that we all notice, right? We, we, we all notice that people look different. We group people. We are, you know, as human beings, we are categorizing machines, categorizing animals. We are constantly grouping, you know, birds of a feather together. And so we look at people's in external characteristics, including their skin color, and we put them in a group. There's no denying that. We can't deny that, that we do that. And when we do that, we are engaging to a certain degree in us and them thinking. Us are people who look and talk and act like us. And them are people who, who don't look like us. So there's no reason to deny this, uh, you know, to, to, to turn a blind eye. You know, it's being colorblind is not turning a blind eye. And if it is, it's foolishness. But perhaps instead of saying, okay, we're looking for a colorblind society, something we can never achieve, we should strive for a society where we are color indifferent, where immutable characteristics are considered irrelevant when they have no bearing on the matters at hand. Sometimes immutable, immutable characteristics do have a bearing on the matters at hand. Like if there's boy, you know, if, 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 uh, if you're trying to decide what you want to sign up and sign up for in terms of boys or girls sports, well, immutable characteristics matter. But in most cases, they don't. Now, no one is saying that we're here, you know, that we're anywhere close to a color indifference society. But I say that we cannot blame Dr. King for dreaming. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful, and I think wouldn't it be terrifying too, to live in a world where people saw us as God sees us, as, as wretches all saved by amazing grace? This brings us to the last aspect of our passage I want to look at, and that's foresight. Looking forward into God's promised future. Now, the story of David is it's the longest narrative biography of any figure in ancient history or ancient literature. And David is a fascinating personality for all the ways he combines the, 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 the heroic and the tragic in one. But here, this, this great man, this incredible figure about whom we get to learn so much, he gets off to a very humble and passive, almost an anonymous start as this overlooked, speechless little boy. In this passage, he's done nothing. There's, there's nothing about him that he does that's great. And in fact, we don't even learn his name till almost the last word. He receives, you know, he's, he receives this anointing and then we're told the spirit rushes on him. And so the key to understanding why David is so important is that ultimately David's story is not about what David does for God, but it's about what God does for David. That's what makes his story matter so much. David is a boy from Bethlehem who points us to the little child of Bethlehem. He's an overlooked son of Jesse who points to the overlooked son of God. David is a king who points to the king. He's a shepherd who points to the good shepherd. He's an anointed one who points to the Messiah. And that word Messiah simply means anointed. David is a man after God's own heart who points us to the one who is the incarnation of God's very own heart. He is the one upon whom the Spirit of God rushed and then led him into, future, into a future filled with battles against Goliath and the Philistines and Saul, but who points us to the one upon whom the Spirit descended like a dove and then was led into the wilderness to confront sin, death, and the devil. David was God's chosen king who failed. But Jesus is the king who succeeded and now who rules and reigns forever and ever. 
So when we look at David's story in hindsight, we see how God's surprising choice of David prepares us for the surprising appearance of Jesus. It gives us insight into the character and identity of the true Messiah. And it gives us foresight to look forward into the future with the eyes of our heart enlightened by the Holy Spirit who leads us like David and Jesus into battle on behalf of our king. At least that's how I see it. Please pray with me. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.